Race doesn't limit you from anything. It's all about I feel like they learn about race from. I teach them. Even you know, about who you are with somebody else that looks like you. And love who you are. To love identity. This is In My Skin, a podcast about race and childhood. I'm Adam Flanagan. If you have ever studied, read, or listened to anything related to education, you have probably encountered the term gaps. There are opportunity gaps, learning gaps, achievement gaps, and they all share the same basic principle. They refer to inequality between two groups of students. The difference between the two groups, that's the gap. Each of these different gaps are often viewed through a racial lens. Specifically, the difference between white and Asian students, and often black students. It's important work that has highlighted the inequities faced by students of color and been used to spark change, but it can also run the risk of only seeing the tree and missing the whole forest. It's a problem that some researchers, like my guest today, Yoma Iruka, refer to as gap gazing, and it's something she is working to progress the education field beyond. Iruka is focused not just on the gap itself, but why it exists in the first place and how we can solve it. Dr. Iruka is the Chief Research Officer at Highscope Educational Research Foundation. Much of her work has centered on the lives of young black children, particularly young black boys. We talked about the problems with gap gazing and the difference between her life as a researcher of young children and as a mother to young children. But first, we talked about her childhood and what it was like bouncing between the United States and Nigeria. This question, I normally ask people before we start recording, but for you, Ioma, I feel like it's an interesting, uh, very interesting question. How do you identify racially? So I sort of consider myself I think black Amer- like black Americans is probably the closest. And the reason why is because I do have a closer lineage to the continent of Africa. So I'm a first generation um, Nigerian. My parents were schooled here and I was born here and half my siblings are born here. Um, so I feel like I have, I'm more black, but I definitely was socialized in America. But I have that, does it, there's something about that connection to the continent that I think gives me a little bit of a different perspective from just the, the, the sort of African-American who have most of their lineage in through the slave trade and enslavement period. So, And I have a different name. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I had uh, picked up the Nigerian. Ioma, I know, is a fairly popular name in Nigeria. Shock it. I don't even know why. That was the only one. <laughs> I know. Well, in Texas, I can't imagine where you were born. I can't imagine there was a ton of Iomas. No, there was not. <laughs> so, we, but you were born in Texas, then uh, spent some time in Nigeria as a child, and then came back over to America in Boston. So when yes. I, that was by second grade, correct? So by, well, third grade, or maybe it was fourth because I got promoted up. But yeah, so like in okay. that, you know, third grade, fourth grade, so I was a year younger than most of my peers. Yes. Okay. So so what do you remember about that time, about going kind of back and forth and back again and uh, as just a young child? Well, I definitely remember when, so when we went back to Nigeria, I was about three 
And so I was there from three to seven. And I literally remember feeling like I don't belong here really because I had more of an American accent than I think the typical accent. I didn't completely identify. I barely ate the food and I didn't do well with the language. So luckily it was a British colonized country. So the the first language is um, British English. So that was fine. But I, I definitely recognized that I didn't completely fit in. So when we returned, um, I, you know, when you, as an immigrant, you return, you're kind of just in a bubble of like, I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to go to school and do whatever. So over time, I definitely recognized that I was black in, in terms of all the people I lived around, you know, we lived in the projects in Boston. They were black for the most part, but I also recognized my difference, right? My name itself, teachers will like have struggles with. And I'm like, that's, that's my first name. I don't know who that is. I have a middle name that I use. So, and it wasn't Tiffany or Renee or something common. So my, none of my names are common American traditional names. So I think that in itself was a bit of a challenge. Um, but I think that I also just recognize that I am who I am. So I think early on, I recognized I just, I'm different, but I know I also have a, a connection to a black group. Um, but I wasn't complete in the race world. And I had a lot of friends even I live in a black majority uh, community. Uh, the school I went to was diverse. A lot of my friends when I was younger were actually white. I think because I also was a relatively smart person. And I think as most schools you find, even in diverse um, schools, the the white children tend to be in the higher functioning or higher track classrooms. And I happened to be there um, as well. So a lot of my friends or people I connected with when I was younger were actually white um, peers. How do you think your experience as a child going like kind of going between uh, countries uh, was was different than your uh, siblings experience? Some having been born in Nigeria and then uh, I assume coming back with you to uh, the United States. Yeah, well, actually, so half my siblings were born there and stayed there till they were teenagers. Okay. And so their socialization was really being a Nigerian language, the food. And so they definitely had a much harder time because by then they, they're in their formative years, they're 12, 13, and that very teenage years, whereas I was kind of still pretty young when I came back and I could actually socialize. I knew all the subtlety, the language, where they had to sort of, have, kind of go really between two worlds, literally. So I think it was different for them um, in many ways. And I think that, but I think it's also something about having your own identity as a Nigerian and you're not, you're a little bit inoculated a little bit, right? Because you, you've already, you know who you are, you know your language, you know your culture. Whereas for me, it's almost like I know I'm Nigerian sort of kind of, but I really am not. And I'm not sort of kind of African-American. I am, but I'm not. So you're really in this sort of dual world where you you sometimes don't feel like you fit in and they eventually have to make a choice i mean the issue is eventually you have to make a choice about are you more of an immigrant are you more of sort of an african-american or black american i think some of those choices are made for you and at least externally at least in the outside world when you're in your home environment you know it's it's probably less of a decision it's you know dependent on your family and, and those around you did you feel like your choice to identify as a black American was put on you or was it something that you uh, uh, took ownership of yourself? I think I feel like it probably was a combination of both. I think, you know, when you're a certain age, you want to fit in. Mm -hmm. um, I think what happened is as I 
I remember I used to have a friend, Dina, when I was about um, in the seventh grade. And as we were matriculating into sort of middle school, we kind of just didn't, we just stopped talking. Like we just, it wasn't even like a something horrible happened. And so, and then what happens, I started hanging out with the black kids. And so I think it was just, this is all subtle. I don't even know if it was an intention, like, oh, I'm no, I'm not gonna have, you know, primarily white friends or black friends. I think it just sort of happened. I just felt a little bit more connected to the black um, kids, and they them found me, you know, connected to them. So I don't think it was it was anything. I think it's just something just happened and clicked, and you just that's who you go with. Um, and I don't think there was a pressure, but I do think. That's, that's something most, at least as a teenager, or at least as a younger person, you don't know the pressure. And maybe mm-hmm. there was, you know, society just expects for black kids, you know, lunchrooms, you know, certain things that are happening throughout your, like, in, in, whether it's a cafeteria, whether it's like the locker in the hallway, you know, you know, there's certain things that just grab, that, for, that kind of, I don't know if it's a force issue or it sort of just gravitates your spirit and your soul. Um, at least for me, it just gravitated in a very, like, natural way it wasn't something i felt like oh i have to choose i think something just happened i think maybe my experiences over time just had me feel like i know now i'm black and that's it and it wasn't some sort of like racial incidents that happened um because i was still who i was but it just happened in a natural kind of way uh, i'm wondering how your parents uh helped you uh identify or help you uh helped you understand racial dynamics as, as as much as any parent can at a young age yeah so my mom is a nigerian in many ways and she's not in many ways <laughs> so my mother is a very um in nigeria you know they tend to sort of it's, it's male dominated and she is the opposite of that where she really was a strong female in many many ways from being educated coming from a um a strong house and a strong family so when we came here actually she became she was a single mother my father was in nigeria with the other kids and my mother was here um with us and you know four kids so i'm one of seven so and my mother worked a lot she had three jobs she was you know had to really work and here she was an educated woman had to really work as an immigrant just to sort of make ends meet so she didn't speak directly about race when we were younger, but she really spoke directly to, I mean, I think there was a sense of you are not, it's not just about you, you are representing me, right? The family, the family name, um, and you always have to be do better. So I, I, I wonder if it's, if it's both the immigrant experience and the black experience, right? So I think it's, mm-hmm. she probably knew it and felt it. And so she went out of her way to make sure that we, that she really, really worked really hard to get us out of the projects. Um, and make sure that we really understood that we had to do really well in school. It wasn't about loving, hugging, all that, but it's about you have to be successful. You have no choice. So I, so I don't know if, and I, you know, when obviously now later on in life when you talk, when you talk as a, you know, mother to, to mother to child, and obviously me as an adult, you understand that that was part of her thinking, right? That here I am an immigrant woman, single mother with all these kids and I need to make sure that you all are not in the same situation, that you can be independent, that you can be successful and upwardly mobile and that you have an immigrant background but you're also black in America. So she clearly recognized that. Um, and I think why she didn't speak directly at it, she definitely, her, her actions and her behavior spoke to that deep, deep understanding. 
So it's, it seems like from our conversation so far that you were pretty aware of your own race and your own skin color from a, a young age. And I'm wondering if there's any specific, uh, if that's true and if there's specific, uh, if there are any like first memories that you have of knowing uh, or remem- knowing that you were uh, Nigerian or that you were a black American or... And see, I, I wish I had like, oh, this was a, bzz. Right. but so I think, because I think that my first, probably, you know, here I am three, I'm in Nigeria, it's a black country. Mm-hmm. So I, like the issue, I mean, it's mostly a, a, like where you're either poor or rich, right? That's the, that, that's really the, the, the dichotomy right there. And then come back to the States. I think, I, I think there was, there wasn't this sort of like incidents that just said it. I, I, I think just as a kid, you just, you know, mm-hmm. you just know it. You just, I, but I think the distinct difference is that I didn't see my blackness as, as negative. I think compared to probably my friends that I actually had a different viewpoint of black skin and blackness because I was in, I was in a country when I was three, four, five, where blackness was normal and they were in power and my father was part of that, right? So I didn't see blackness as as powerless and then the states is actually so in the states here that's blackness is really um low power low education so i think i actually had a different viewpoint i think while i didn't connect that complete as a young child i didn't have the same connotation about my skin like yes society i think yes there were incidences you know when you're in the when you're in the projects you know you kind of see mostly black people again so even though you know nigeria's mostly black and America is diverse, but in the community I'm in, people are mostly black, you know, for the most part. You know, the schools may be diverse, but the neighborhood I'm sort of in, the, the people I'm hanging around are black. So I think it didn't really register that much. The most it registers is like when you have siblings or you have friends whose skin are lighter, or you have an albino and skin lighter. Um, and so for me, it didn't register that early in life. And it wasn't, I guess, even if it did, it wasn't a bigger deal. Um, and I didn't, I didn't sort of talk, at least when I was younger, oh, this is my wife friend, this is my black friend. Like, that wasn't even how me and my sisters talked. We just, we literally, for us growing up, and probably my, my older sister in particular, who went to private school um, later in life, I think our friends were just so diverse. And maybe because we literally did cross both the immigrants and the racial. So for us, we were like, where whoever is nice and friendly and we can get along with, for us, it didn't matter as much. However, obviously, over time, you get a little bit more um, uh, socialized in, into sort of life. So you've gone on to do a lot of very interesting research in education, in particular how it intersects with race and poverty and a lot of different other uh, factors. And I'm wondering if if there is, if not having had that negative perception uh, as a child growing up of uh, of your own race, if that, if like whenever you started learning as, you know, as you grew up about how other people, uh, how other people perceive black Americans, if when you, when you learned about the negativity that does exist, is that something that prompted you to study this at all? So I would say my, um, while I would say why I did not have the full onslaught of black is horrible, you know, I, you know, I, why I didn't have that, I definitely know what was out there, right? As a killer, mm-hmm. you kind of get a sense of, yes, we know black people not like, so I kind of got that, but 
that and that I actually use that is probably part of my fuel, right? That both as I think as a Nigerian, as a black person, that um, you know, as a Nigerian, you're always going to try to do be excellent. That's that's pretty much it because mm-hmm. it's not about you, it's about your family. And then I think part of the message is that um for black people is that you know you're not smart or brilliant and I'm always, you know, like, no, that's not true. So for me, I think my the my folk my research and the work that I do and I, I kinda they're really me. Like for me, I don't put down my research. Like, you know, I feel like I'm so much my research because what happened is that as I, you know, went through high school, I really recognized and I literally this is what this was the pattern. We I went to a public exam school in Boston. So you have to get an exam, you have to actually take a test to get in, but it's a public school. And I literally remember that a lot of my black friends and black peers ended up leaving before uh, graduation and went to an alternative high school. So these were clearly brilliant, gifted people as well, you know, but somehow 50%, if not more, especially the black males, ended up either getting kicked out, suspended, thrown out, whatever, right? And again, you, you don't know why, but you just see that pattern every year decrease in the number of black students. Um, and so for me, I was like, wow, we're all similar. We grew up in the projects. A lot of us were single, were in single parent households, mostly mothers, you know, and we were clearly smart enough to be there. So for me, it sort of, it sort of propelled me a little bit. I, I think I was still gun shy. That's not a good, a good phrase, right? But I was still shy in terms of, I didn't have the full confidence to say, I want to talk about race. I kind of used, I think what I consider the white man's code word, which is low income, poverty, you know, anything but, but, you know, so when I did my work both in Philly a temple and then uh, in um, Miami, I did race in Miami. Like I always sort of said, oh, the poor kids, you know, like, and here I was poor. Like, so mind you again, I grew up in poverty in the projects and food stamps, all that, right? Even though I didn't know that until I was much older that I realized, oh wow, we were really poor. Um, so, so I, so I, for me, I, I didn't, I didn't really speak to that until I got older and, and I felt I got, that's probably post PhD we're talking about now, mm-hmm. right? Where I feel like I've gone through school, I've got my BA, my master's, PhD, and I'm still like, <sighs> then I, for me, it's, so the issue of race as, a, as, as really as a core focus of mine, while it was, I, it was literally, my, that was my question before I even started Amy school, like um, grad, uh, undergrad, I felt like I couldn't just say it. There was not, I didn't feel like I had the courage, the nerve, or the way to, to talk about it without people feeling like, oh my goodness, who are you? So I it took me a while to get to that, but it took me actually re-educating myself. Because I think it's one thing to live the experience and kind of think through it, but it's another thing to say, why is it that some of us made it? Is it luck? Is it chance? And why is that some of us didn't? And what is it about? Is it us? Right? People always assume it's like you, you were just smart. But I'm like, no, that can't be, right? So it has to be something else systematic. So that's when the, for me, it was really a self journey that I think now my work probably shows it. But I think if you look at earlier work, I did poverty. I did work with mostly black families and black, black programs, but I never actually said it explicitly that it's really about a racialized work and racialized um, lens. So what has it been like then trying, like incorporating race into your work? Is it is it something that is you still find yourself being like uncomfortable at times bringing it into it or are you have you gotten to the point where you've done it so much that it's comfortable like how what is it like having done, not done it since the very very beginning of your research yeah i so for me i think so it's definitely not completely comfortable mm-hmm. i you know i feel like i'm still relatively young yes i think i've done i feel like I, i'm i'm encouraged by the work i am doing and people i'm collaborating with but it definitely still a scary place because in the end of it you know 
not everybody wants to hear like, oh my God, those poor black people. Like I know that people, the like anything about race, particularly black people, I would argue, is one where I know I physically and can feel the room change, shift, the accountability. People want to say, what about poor kids? What about brown kids? What about special needs kids? Like I can feel it. And for me, I just know that I have to just hold on. This mean, literally means I have to walk in the journey with the people. And this is usually happens when I'm in the conversations and in the Q and A's where I know it's so uncomfortable to have to remind people that, you know, the US started with a racialized lens, like, you know, whether from red line into Jim Crow and it still maintains itself. So, I mean, I hate to sort of remind, be the reminder and then says, if you want to really help children, then, oh, the achievement gap being people talk about, you actually have to start from the history in the beginning. And that actually requires actually talking about hard stuff. And it's, so for me, it's actually still hard. And I think people don't understand that there's, there's a stress level. For me, and as a, there's a stress level in that I'm like, I'm having to sort of um, take two sides. I'm having to sort of like, I'm going to not go too far while also monitoring how the others are receiving it. So there's a level, so I don't think people understand, there's a level of mental gymnastics that's happening no matter because not only is it research but it's also something that's personally attached like it's a personal journey like the questions I ask is I understand the implications not just for my kids or family but for people who look like me that it's a personal thing so I don't go home and like put it down like it literally lives in me and so for me it's almost like how do you really be careful of walking the emotional line and as a researcher how do you really walk that emotional lived experience and then also what is objective science about it and that's something is hard and i think people don't realize is that there's eventually a psychological um consequence of always having to like walk two different lines um but i think that's part of it like i have to really be thoughtful about how to engage in a conversation and how to do the research but also knowing that if i don't speak it nobody probably will speak it especially in the spaces that i am in I think you're I think that's such a good point about how the about what the emotional toll and the personal toll that these conversations have for you and I think it's something that whenever people usually not black people in these conversations have uh bring up things uh defensive things like oh well, why don't like yeah but what if we talk about this or what if we talk about like white girls or what about girls and stuff like uh, women say or what about this and it's it's uh I think it's easy to whenever people start putting up those defensive postures just to for them to just think of themselves in that moment and to not recognize the other people that you're actually having a conversation with, whether it's in an academic setting, whether it's in an office setting, whether it's just at home. It's I think it's yeah. just such a easy thing to do. Yeah. But I find it exciting now, though, is that there are a lot more people who are white who are engaged in this conversation. Like I think about in my child's school, you know, there's a parent there who's a white parent who has um, a biracial black child. And, you know, to have, you know, white people also be part of the conversation and push it, because in the end of it, as a black person, you want to be really careful that you're not pushing so far that you lose, lose the conversation in the room. But it's nice when you can just have these conversations, understand that nobody, like we're all in a journey of trying to understand and deal with this really emotional and psychologically traumatic kind of it. Like it's just, it just is. And it's nice that when you can really have people who are going to do that with you together. So whether as a researcher, you're presenting your stuff is really nice when you have white colleagues who are, you understand 
that we may not have the answer to everything, but we have to recognize that race is such a huge piece. And for most researchers, they do quote unquote control for it. And the argument is you can't control for something that really lives and breathes. It's like a move. It's like a heart. It just keeps going and going. And you can try to like stop your heart. If you stop your heart, you're dead. But it's like people try to control it and you can't control it through an analytical methodology. So it's actually really nice when, you know, some of the senior scholars are able to sort of say, especially white senior scholars are able to um, really say um, and support, at least say, you know, what, these are really important questions. And we really applaud that this is being asked. And then they take that conversation forward in different ways. So to me, having a white counterparts or having those who are also speaking it and not always having the black person or the person of color be the one to speak it, I think it's so much, it's so powerful and I think could change the research we do and eventually the policy and practice um, prescriptions that are had. Because, you, you know, you as a black or brown person, you don't want to always be the one who's always shaking the table because at the end of it, it, it's sort of you do, there is an emotional toil as you said. So, yes. When you do encounter defensiveness or people uh, putting up shields or using whatever kind of language they can to kind of skirt around uh, the topics of race, is there are there techniques, are there ways, are there go-to things that you do to kind of make sure that the core of your message and the core of the subject matter stays on track? So, because I know it's going to happen. So I feel like at least how I try to approach is that I really do try to, and I hope people do think that, that while race is going to be, and I make it clear before I even come in the room, I make it very clear, like this is what I'm going to talk about. And so if you invite me, I'm always going to make that clear so people know what they're going to get into. But I hope that you come across in that is not, is that I also bring a lived experience. So it's more of a a personal story, Mm -hmm. right? I talk about, you know, being a parent to two black children, one of them being a young black boy. And I talk about, you know, there's I, I there's a there's something that shifted when I had my son that I wasn't prepared for that, oh my God, I'm gonna have to like this and I do a lot of parenting research. And so it's not just about, oh um, you know, read to your child, be nice to your child kind of thing. But as a parent of a black child and a black son in particular, I actually now have to be worried not just about his academic and cognitive development. I have to actually be worried about his own safety, right? That if he walks out this door, is he going to come home, right? And that's a different parenting that people don't actually have to ever live. So I think when, for me, so I, I try to sort of say, I acknowledge that this, and I, and I actually acknowledge that these conversations are hard and I don't, I'm not an expert in having them, but I think I do try to shape it with experiences. And it's not about blaming individuals. So I really try to also focus on, I'm not going to pinpoint individuals. I'm going to pinpoint systems that are at work, right? There are things that have been done. Yes, they were created by individuals, but systems like education, like housing, like labor, those are systems that perpetuate the issues that continue to thrive around inequalities. So I try to say like, in the end of it, if you're a good person, be a good person. But if you're part of a system, how do you actually work in either improving it or making it better, or don't continue sort of to create barriers to um, for inequality. So to me, I try to really focus on systematic work in education. What can we do systematically? We can talk about the workforce. We can talk about program standards, assessments. Let's talk about things that you can control, but it's not about, oh, you're a horrible person. I don't think anybody is horrible per se, but I do think 
there's things about privilege that we empower that we have to sort of say, if you're phenotypically, you know, white, you're in a certain community, you have a certain edu- you know, like there's things that you just have to say you're privileged by. I'm privileged being sort of um, somebody who is in education, who has a PhD, who's higher up or mobile. I have a privilege in that. So I think it's just figuring out. And so for me, I kind of just focus on the systems that we have to focus on and then how do we as individuals make sure the systems is not creating inequity. So that's the best that I do. Is it perfect? Probably not. But I definitely try to not have people just cow away from race. I think before I used to, I kind of just said, yeah, mm-hmm. But now I just say, well, no, I want to focus on race um, and the issues of race. And and I again, I get I bring in history, and I can bring I can talk about sort of like issues of how housing impacts every single community, you know. So I think now, is it being uh, to, to, I sort of try to reduce the emotional. Um, potential for flight. It's almost like we think about how police officers are trained. Your job is to sort of bring the emotional level down so you can actually have um, a a conversation where you can actually hear each other. And so for me, I try to work on how do I just bring it down and sometimes I, you know, put light to it. You know, you you have to make things, some things a little bit lighter and comfortable so people can say, okay, I can calm down a little bit. So for me, I I do, I think I have sort of a, a lighter, calmer demeanor in terms of I'm more funny and I talk fast. Um, so I hope that that in, um, engenders people to me and then eventually the message, right? It's all about the messenger. So hopefully that does that. So you mentioned being a mother and I want to talk about that and because uh, so much of your research is so interesting in uh, how parenting plays into uh, the development of children. And you've you've done so much interesting research that we're going to talk about in a minute, but I'm wondering how you juggle being a mother of black children and just being a human fallible person with all, as well as being somebody that has all this knowledge and like, like theoretically, like if somebody's going to be a good parent to a black child, it's probably should, it's going to be you. So like, how do you, how do you juggle those two roles in your life? First, I want to say lies. I want to say lies because <laughs> that's exactly true. Like, I should totally know better. But I say, in the end of it, I literally, I could just tell, I mean, I, I know all my professors are probably going to be like, oh, my God, Ayoma. I would say, I, I think part of it, I threw all that I know out the door. Like, mm-hmm. I think there's one thing to talk about parenting and research at a general level, but it's another thing when you have to parent your individual child. And I think that's just part of, now I, I think about that as I do more research. But I would say it's because I have, I, I just, the privilege I have is I have a wonderful husband who himself is an immigrant, right? A black immigrant from the Bahamas. And so I think that to do, to be the best parents we can be to our young kids, we actually talk a lot about race. I was like, the one thing actually, we, like when we talk about, when we think about, oh, how do we measure racial socialization? We call it in research. How do we, you know, how people talk about race with their kids? They're like, we don't do that till they're older. But I'm like, we actually are talking to, we're already talking about race to kids, even when they're born. Like me and my husband literally were like talking about race before, after, during, when they're around, like race, meaning how do we make sure that the way our kids, we see them, they're also being seen the, the way that we see them by other people, that they're treated the same way that we want them to be treated, that they're afforded the same opportunities that we're, like if we're like working hard to put you in this school, we need you to get the same exact sort of quality, if not better than Sally over here, right? Like that's literally what we're always thinking. So I think I, I think the best parenting 
and probably the best person is where you can actually engage in this critical self analysis mm-hmm. with a partner who's also invested in the same goal. So for me, I don't even, I think I'm, I'm probably, I think I'm a horrible parent. Like, yes, I do. You know, like, yes, you know, I do the reading and yes, you know, I do the talking, you know, and, and I think I'm lucky that my kids are, are just fantastically brilliant. You know, a two year old boy and a five year old girl, I think they're fantastically brilliant in their own way. And my job, and I really, I think our job, me and my husband say is, is not to actually um, is to make sure that we don't make them worse. Like, uh, like they, cause they're brilliant in themselves. And it's like, let's not, let's not ruin it. Like that's the stuff, like let's not ruin it. That's really our fear. And so to me, it's part of, yes, there's some basic knowledge that I think I have. And I would say a lot of people have, which is I want the, like most people have this without PhDs, right? You want the best for your kids. You want your kids to be really well-liked and well-respected. You want them to be respecting others and to also treat others well. And you want them to try their best, right? And so, and you do what you can to to do that. And then as a black parent, you're sort of like, you know, for, another, you know, your kids, you want them to, to just not, hopefully society will not push them down. Like our daughter, we hope society doesn't treat you as sort of somebody who's, um, obnoxious and rude as opposed to somebody who's precocious and brilliant, right? As in my son, you know, somebody who is, you know, curious as opposed to somebody who's a troublemaker or who can't sit still. So, so part of my, what I think about, you know, my kids, because I think they're going to be fine generally, right? Is But I think about other kids who may not have the sort of structure. We have two parents, we, and we have, you know, grandmothers and we have people who love them unconditionally. And I think that's what we want people who like them and love them. And that's really what we're trying to do for our kids. But what we want, at least for me, what I want for a lot of the kids who look like my kids, um, because I think just having one and you still have millions that are suffering is just not going to be helpful in the long run. So I don't know how I put it. To, I don't know how I, how I do it. I don't, I think it's, I do it because I have a lot of people who talk through this and I think it's having emotional health. And I think we don't talk a lot about how being black America could be toxic to you and toxic to being a parent because you're so overwhelmed with the emotional baggage of being black, especially and how horrible you are, et cetera, et cetera. And that could penetrate the the walls you have. But is I think the beauty of being black actually is that you there's a lot of hope and love that you have for your community and for your people. And I think in many ways that's the beauty. So I want my so my daughter colors um she colors pictures that look white. She calls them brown. You're like Thank God. Like maybe we are like maybe the race, we're not having a race conversation with her. We're having it around her. And for somehow she said, I'm brown. I'm beautiful. I'm gonna color this picture brown because that's what it should be. I need to look like me. And there's no value she's added to it other than I want a picture to look like me and that's it. So it's just so for us, it's just be your best and we're gonna be the best parents we can be in this society. And I feel like that's something that whether you're an academic that has studied this stuff or whether you're a parent that has never talked about race with their child at all, it's something that's kind of like a unifying factor that people can kind of latch on to. Yeah. Um, so I do want to talk about some of your research, though, um, because you've kind of uh, you've done a lot of research. And the in preparing for this discussion, I realized that you've done a lot of research. And to, for me to actually be able to uh, summarize or provide uh, interesting bullet points would be kind of silly. So I'm wondering for whenever you uh, present and whenever you d- talk about your research, are there certain things that may uh, that tend to stick with people, that surprise people about some of the findings that you've encountered? 
Yeah, so I was, I mean, there's, you know, most researchers, they go on and on about their stuff. But I would say sort of the underlying thing about my research, some of the bullet points I've put out is that race matters, good or bad. Race actually really does matter. Race, for example, sort of says that some parents, like black parents, do different kind of parenting, right? And that's because they live in sort of a different kind of context even if we mean we don't mean it to be you know that race matters for parenting and then race matters for black children you know in particular and 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 in many instances as well latino children but race matters in all facets of everything like and and i think the bottom line is that i can close my eyes and i could talk to a school superintendent i can talk to a social a child welfare worker I can talk to housing. I can talk to almost any de- any department. I can tell you, yep, I know where the black kids and the black families are going to be. I know what your stats are probably going to say. And I think the fact that I know that and many of us know that without ever stepping foot into the city, without ever looking at your own data, like their data, that you can, you can actually pinpoint a lot of that, I think just speaks to the systematic nature of, of how race is perpetuated, particularly for black and brown um, people. So for me, that's the underlying, that race matters in everything, health, education, housing, income, yada, 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 yada. And in that, and for in, in particular, it always, black people are always gonna be at the bottom. And this is not just a US phenomenon, it's actually a global phenomenon. Um, and so to me, that's the underlying. However, with all that negativity said, I think you still also find a lot of creativity and a lot of hope. Um, and so there's a whole, we call it tough love parenting, for example, in black families where we have high expectations of you. Um, and so, because we realize that society is going to be pretty brutal to you. So we, we, we love you to death, but we also also have high expectations that you're gonna do your best and no matter what, you're gonna go through the obstacles. And to me, that's, the soul of being black in America and probably being black globally. And that to me is the underlying is that while we may have these negative disparities and, and, and figures, particularly around black people, that I think there's a rec- that we should recognize that there's so many assets. Um, and that's what I try to do in my work is that there are so many assets. It's just that the system um, either hinders them or doesn't find them valuable. But, it, but luckily, the community finds it valuable and we thrive, we continue to thrive even in a society that doesn't actually value who and what we are and what we do. One of the things, specific things I, that you've mentioned in uh, your research that I want to ask you about is the idea of gap gazing. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could give people a kind of a, a general definition of what gap gazing actually is and why it is something that is counterproductive. Oh my goodness. I first want to say, I want to give a shout out to my good friend and colleague, Marisha Humphreys at the University of Illinois, Chicago. She's the one where that started. We wrote a whole paper on it um, because we we're talking about, oh my God, because almost everybody in education research, early child research, all about the, it's all about the achievement gap, right? Particularly between low income and higher income and children of color and white children. Basically that, you know, children of color and poor children don't do as well on any achievement test compared to their white and higher income peers. Um, and a lot of people, researchers, many people that they make their name, their scholarship, who they are off of that achievement gap. And so all they literally do is gaze at it. Like we're gonna, here's what, like, what is it? What, 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 what outcomes could we look at? 
but there's never or there's rarely I should say a discussion on why does it exist and why does it persist that is so so just telling me that I'm fat is not helpful telling me like why maybe why is it that I'm fat or why is it that the, the, the gap is there and what we could do about it is helpful so so I that is so the issue that we spend so much time just gazing at the numbers and just saying, oh my God, these, and then, so, and then the issue is that it actually puts it on the kids. It's basically saying, hey, black kids, hey, brown kids, hey, child who does not speak English, you are just terrible and stupid. And not so much as, wait, we literally have set you up so that you will never do well on these tests for many, many reasons and for centuries and generations. So we are not looking as to why and we're not looking as to what we should really effectively do. And so it really is, so that's why a lot of us are not trying to say, let's not talk about the achievement because it really puts it literally on the kid's back. And that's why a lot of interventions are like, oh, how can we get the child to read? Let's gonna give you a reading tutor and, and, and drill and kill you basically so that you can learn how to read when that's not how reading actually completely works. Um, as opposed to what about the opportunities that we're providing to get them there? So we argue, are you providing the best healthcare? Are you providing the best learning environment with the best teachers? Are you providing, you know, the best, you know, sort of um, opportunities to have conversations, opportunities to read? Are you providing families with the stability and the knowledge and information to do their best? So there's a so we provide opportunities so that children can achieve, and that's what we have to do. Whereas it's supposed to say, oh my God, you poor poor children, you are doing so terrible. So that's kind of the whole entire notion of why it's really detrimental to just gap gaze, and then. The issue is that we're not looking at the systematic because if it even after billions of dollars of investment in education and other things, and we're still seeing the same exact inequities, that means that it's something much more systematic and deeper than what we've done. And so that means we have to really be much more thoughtful about how systems function and then perpetuate inequities and then hence the achievement gap and so on and so forth. So so many of the topics that I that we've talked about today I, I think are researched in so in a variety of different areas and a variety of different age ranges and and really I feel like the work that you've done it, it could it, it is it is being done in so many different all these different places so I'm wondering what drew you to early childhood why why are you why did you feel that you wanted to do this research with young children well I think because what 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 we see when kids are later, and sorry for all my, my friends and peers and scholars who do work with later adolescents and on and on, is that a lot of what children are going to be in many ways is already baked in, meaning that um, you know the kind of personality, the kind of language skill, their um, some of a lot of that is already formed in their early years. Like when people, so when we think about anything that happens in society, like you can watch any show, right? You're like, wow, why are you so sad? And then the question is, what happened in your childhood? I mean, is you know, like people literally, like whatever problems you're having, literally with your relationship. How come you can't, you know, find a husband or you can't find a, a wife or you know the job? Literally, you could track it right back to what was your family life growing up, right? Because all that matters. It sets sort of the pathway, the way you see the world, the model you have in your head about whether how relationships work, who people are. So a lot of that is set up early. 
um, in life. And, and, and we understand that now brain development is telling us, you know, is really showing us that, you know, a lot of what children know and do is really set up early. And so if we want to actually make significant changes, we need to make sure that the first few years, like basically that first five, six, seven years of children's life is really one of the best times, right? Because it really forms the foundation, whether it's for, and we know that now just biologically, whether it's about hearing, sight, language, some of your personality traits, some of that is really formed. The foundation for it is really formed early on. Um, and then, then it's actually, then certain pieces of it form further later on, but the foundation, foundational pieces is really formed early on. And so that's why early childhood matters for me. It's like we at least and minimally, and that's why the issue of even talking about race early on matters. I think many people assume, oh, race is so sensitive. We can't talk to the kids about that. But that's not true. Many kids already have a decision, already know. First of all, kids know color difference, right, differentiation. And second, they begin to have value added to it. We know, a lot of us know about the Clark doll test, and people can Google that. But basically where kids were showing a white doll versus a black doll, and then kids of all races, black and white, would say, oh, we like the white doll. She's prettier. Oh, he's nicer, kinder. The black doll is mean and ugly. So kids already have begin to uh, beginning to connect color and judgments and that's really where the issue of, of prejudice comes in and so on and so forth right so kids do that early and so imagine if we can really begin to be much more engaged in the race conversations or at least issues of race much earlier and that doesn't mean just sit down and have hey don't don't be mean to black people or people who don't look like you no it's, it's more about how do we sort of engage and think about society and our roles in society. How do we have children who are much more aware about biases and treating people um, wrong just based on color and not knowing who they are? So some there's some things that we can do early on that sets the stage early on later on in life. Like for example, I remember I don't know if this is true, but I remember hearing a story. I should go look it up. Really, that um, in Germany, when kids are thinking about in second grade, they actually literally do a test or at least this 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 exercise where one day kids come to school and they're told you have two hours to go home, get your stuff, um, say bye to your parents. But mind you, in that two hours, your parents could be not at home. You may not know what to get, all these things. And so now you know what it feels like when you literally one day you're removed from your family, you're locked up, there's no connection. What does that feel like? What does that make you feel so that you never have the Holocaust? Because you need to literally feel that because it's gonna carry you for a lifetime, right? And so that's part of it. It's like we can begin to inoculate or begin to talk about these issues with children early on, that you know that there's less likelihood that they're gonna engage in bigotry um, and, and, and issues of discrimination later on in life. Yoma Aruka, thank you so much for uh, talking to me today. I think I, I learned a lot and I very much appreciate you taking some time to talk. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I can't wait to hear the podcast and the other ones as well. In My Skin is a production of the University of Pittsburgh Pride Program, which stands for Positive Racial Identity Development in Early Education. Pride is part of the University of Pittsburgh School of Education Office of Child Development, and every episode of In My Skin can be found on our website, racepride.pit.edu. This episode was produced by me, Adam Flango, as well as Pride Director Aisha White, and Pride Director of Engagement, Medina Jackson. Music for today's episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to our funders, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and Hillman Family Foundations.